Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to curiositystream.com slash not overthinking. For less than $15 a year, you get access to thousands of high quality documentaries on CuriosityStream, and you'll also get a special link to our podcast feed with all of the ads taken out. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Now, due to a few scheduling abnormalities between me and Taymor, this episode is going to be an in-between episode, um, but this is a very good one. This is an interview that I did with my favorite author of all time, Brandon Sanderson. Brandon has written the incredible series of fantasy books like uh, the Mistborn series and the Stormlight Archive in particular. He also finished off the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan, and I've been listening to Brandon Sanderson audiobooks pretty much non-stop since like 2017. And yeah, he has overtaken J.K. Rowling to become my favorite author of all time. So this is a very uh, interesting interview, um, a discussion where we talk about writing, we talk about books, we talk about the business of book publishing, and we talk about kind of the strategies that he's picked up over the years to become such a prolific and consistent author with everything that he does. So if you're interested in fantasy books, you're going to love this. But even if you're not, um, I think it's just an interesting exploration of one of the most prolific uh, authors in the space and and, and and the secrets behind his success. Before we get into it, let's take a quick note. This podcast is kindly brought to you by none other than Skillshare. Yes, that's right. Skillshare is once again sponsoring the podcast. If you haven't heard by now, Skillshare is an online community with thousands and thousands of classes from all sorts of topics, including productivity, entrepreneurship, graphic design, illustration, cooking, interior design, knitting. There's pretty much a class for everything on Skillshare. Now, if you join Skillshare with a free trial of the premium membership at skillshare.com slash not overthinking pod, then during your free trial, you can check out the eight different classes that I have got on Skillshare. So I've taught two classes around productivity, two classes around how to study for exams and a class on how to be happier using lessons from stoicism. And we've actually got two more Skillshare classes coming out in the next few weeks. Another class you might like to check out is Marcus Brownlee, aka MKBHD's brand new Skillshare original class on how to be an effective YouTuber. Uh, MKBHD is one of my biggest inspirations for YouTube. He's got like 13 million subscribers. He's been doing tech YouTube for about 10 years at this point. And it's a very interesting look at, into how he scripts and films and writes and edits all of his videos, which is very nice. So to get access to all of my classes, to get access to Marquez's class and thousands of others, head over to Skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking pod for your free trial of premium membership. Once your trial is over, the annual premium subscription is less than $10 a month, which is totally worth it and so much better for you than a Netflix or World of Warcraft membership in my case. So thanks uh, for listening. And I will now uh, transition to the interview between me and the one and only Brandon Sanderson. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this very exciting episode of the Deep Dive Livestream. This is a lot earlier in my day than we usually do these things. Uh, but today I am Absolutely delighted to be joined by my favorite author of all time, Brandon Sanderson. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Sorry to make you uh, change around how you work uh, over here. It's, uh, it's quite late. So we found a time that is fine for both of us, but perfect for neither, I suspect. It's actually, it's actually been pretty good for me. Like This is, this is a, a good reason to get me out of bed in the morning. I always try and schedule calls at like 8 or 9 in the morning just to force me out of bed. And this is like, <laughs> yeah the the perfect setup I've been for known that. to do the same thing honestly different times as we might talk about uh it's not eight or nine that I'm scheduling them but I do schedule them to give myself a deadline sometimes yeah so so on that note you're you're very much like 
you've got a, ver- a very unusual sleep schedule. Like, what does your what does your day usually look like? So my day, I will get up um, a lot of times around one. Um, I found that two sessions of work are better for me than one long one. Uh, about a four hour session uh, writing is really good for me. It's this odd thing where I, I think this is similar actually to a lot of work, but you got this like hour of spin up time and near the end, you're starting to kind of spin down and run out of uh, run out of steam. Um, and if I try to push that too long, um, either one of those sides will kind of stretch out. And what I'm really looking for is that time in the middle that's really effective. Um, and I found for me about four hours gives me a good two hours of really efficient writing time in the middle. Um, and so I try to schedule my life around having two of those. And I have always been a bit of a night owl. I find it peaceful to work at night. Uh, there are fewer distractions. Um, I spent a lot of my early career before I broke in working a graveyard shift uh, at a hotel. And so I will stop my work at 5 uh, shower for the day, get ready. This is 5 p.m. Uh, then hang out with my family uh, and things until around 10. Go back to work at 10 and write from about 10 until 2. Uh, and then 2 until 4 tends to be just whatever I want to do. Um, goof off time, so to speak. Uh, whatever whatever I feel like doing at the time. Um, and that that works really well for me. It gives me enough time just by myself um, doing some sort of hobby or something, but it doesn't overload on it. And it makes sure that each of those writing sessions is pretty effective. Mm. Uh, so I've been doing this uh, pretty consistently um, since I broke in. Uh, and before that, I was doing one writing session at night during the graveyard shift. Um, and the day session was uh, going to school or things like that. Nice. So if we go, if we go all the way back, um, when did you realize that you wanted to be a writer? <laughs> Uh, I got to it a little late, um, later than a lot of people. You talk to novelists and they'll say, oh, I started, uh, my first concept was in the womb. And by the time I was two, I was working on my first piece of uh, poetry or whatever. Um, uh, I discovered books when I was a teenager. I was 14. I had a good teacher who got me into reading. And I found something in books that I had been missing in my life without knowing it. Uh, some sort of connection, specifically to fantasy and science fiction. There was something about the wonder, the world building, uh, mixed with interesting concepts and philosophy, and just the whole package really grabbed me. Um, and even as young as like 14, I'm like, man, I wonder wonder if I could do this. Uh, I don't think I really started giving it a, a shot and considering it like professionally um, until I was 17 or so. Um, and I finished my first novel, the first thing I, I, I got done, I was 22. And so I kind of count 22, that, that age. That's when it's like, all right, I have decided um, I've moved my major from chemistry to English. Um, and I am just going to throw my hat in the ring and do my best to become a writer. Nice. And am I right in saying that you, that you wrote 13 books before one of them, one of them was sold? Yes, I did. Uh, I Then for the next um, eight years or so, uh, eight or nine years. Uh, I wrote two books a year ish on average uh, for, yeah, I guess. So more around a uh, little less than two books a year, but you know what I mean? Hmm. Um, I eventually sold my first, let's see, I sold my first in 2003. Um, and so I would have been 28. Uh, so it's a little less than, than eight years, uh, more like six years. 
Um, so it was about two books a year. Uh, I wrote 13 novels. I sold my sixth one right when I was uh, just polishing up the 13th. Um, that was 2003. That came out in 2005. Um, so right around when I turned 30 uh, mm. is when my career kind of officially began. Okay. And that was Elantris, was it? That was Elantris. Yep. Yeah. Um, it, so it's, it's kind of weird for me because like I, so, so I discovered Mistborn in 2017 and I made the mistake when reading Mistborn of reading it too quickly. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, uh, I've, I've, got, I've got lots of friends who are also huge, huge fans of yours. We have a WhatsApp group that we call the Sander Lads, uh, where we <laughs> share like book recommendations and things. Uh, and everyone was like, okay, n- now that you've done, you've read Mistborn, you have to read Stormlight next. And so like 2017, 2018 was like my final year of med school. And that was like my Mistborn era. And then oh, sort you're of... Insane. Sorry? <laughs> I said, you're insane. Med school plus a large epic fantasy series. Oh yeah, um, it's 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 got to be done. Um, <laughs> and then uh, twenty eighteen to nineteen was my first year of being a doctor, uh, where I was kind of walking to work for twenty minutes, half an hour each day, and back. And so that was the audiobook for Stormlight one, two, and three for that whole year, basically. And then twenty nineteen to twenty uh, was my second year of being a doctor, where I was commuting an hour back and forth from work by car, and that was Wheel of Time saga. And so it's like each okay. of these years of my life can be traced to. <laughs> Michael Kramer and Kate Redding in my in my AirPods or through my car speakers. Um, but I I discovered Elantris. I think it, it was it was only a few months ago. Like I'd been I'd I'd obviously heard about it through your website and stuff. I just didn't think to read it because it was it wasn't part of a, a series. And I thought you know what let's try Elantris. Right. And it kept me up until like six in the morning, like for like three nights in a row. <laughs> so it was so well, good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, it is a little bit odd in that I wanted to start with a standalone. Uh, now that my uh, renown, so to speak, has grown, um, it's a little less necessary. But when I was breaking in, one of the things I was really worried about, um, perhaps um, unreasonably, but I don't know, it worked out for me, was that um, in the 90s is when epic fantasy really became a bankable genre for the publishers. Uh, it had kind of you know, started back with Tolkien, right? In the 70s is where it, they really, but in the 90s with Robert Jordan, and uh, Robin Hobb and George R. R. Martin. This is when it became a blockbuster um, uh, genre. And the hardcovers were selling a ton of copies. And so every publisher wanted to have their big epic fantasy series. And a lot of the market got flooded by these. Um, and a lot of them flopped hardcore. Um, they were just not connecting very well. And interestingly, this is when the, the YA... Um, uh, subgenre if you want to call it whatever you call ya uh, really exploded that's the harry potter and, and twilight era when all the epic fantasy publishers the published doing epic fantasy are kind of floundering um and this is right after this whole thing is when i broke in uh in 2003 2005 and i said you know what i do not want book one of ten on my first book i want people to be able to read a complete story by itself i want a standalone um and uh, I know that I've tried a, uh, several series that say book one of 10, and I didn't like it. And I'm frustrated that it, I didn't just get a full story from that author. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so uh, I was pretty adamant about my first book should be a standalone. Uh, the publisher uh, wanted me to do sequels to it. And I said, no, uh, let's let my calling card to the reading community be a book 
that they get a complete story in rather than a, a little sliver of something big. Uh, and once I had that out, I then did a trilogy uh, and then moved on to doing what I really, you know, I really wanted to do one of these big series, but I felt that holding off on it was a better choice. Hmm. So, so you're 30 and you've just sold Elantris. Uh, the, and, and the way it works in fiction is that you, you write the whole book and then you sell the book or is it, is it based yeah. on like a proposal and like, how, do, how does that work? You really, in fiction, do not sell on proposal unless you are a celebrity that already has a built-in fan base. Um, that sort of book can be sold on proposal. Or if you're an established novelist, right? When I go to my edit publisher right now, I say, here's the next thing I'm doing. Here's a synopsis and what the series will kind of be about so you can start to get marketing on board. Uh, they really like to get uh, a summary and synopsis from me rather than just waiting for the book. But as a new author... You got to you got to finish the whole thing uh, almost uh, without uh, exclusion, and so um, it, it is this weird thing where you know you get in nonfiction you'll get paid in advance to write the book right that'll give you the time in fiction you got to already have the book so the advance is kind of to pay for your next book but then we're not talking big money um, uh, Elantris and Mistborn was my first contract. Um, and it was 10000 per book split across around three to four years. Um, it was really about 5000 per novel advance every year for four years. Um, and that's, uh, that's not a lot of money to live on. Um, and so I was uh, at this time, I had, um, I had that sweet, sweet uh, public uh, t- school teacher money from my wife that I had uh, just married. Um, I, we got married in 2006. So about a year after Elantris came out. Um, and I lived on her, uh, exhaustive salary for those, uh, early years of my, uh, of my career. Uh, but that's pretty standard, at least in sci-fi fantasy. Um, advances tend to be between five and $10,000, uh, for a first book by an author, whose book doesn't, um, doesn't draw what we call an auction. Once in a while, a book will just take off, uh, even before it's published. And a lot of publishers will want it. It hits the whatever's going on in the market, just hits it just right, or everyone gets really excited. And you do hear of these things happening, uh, books selling for $250,000 or things like this by a first-time author. Totally happens. Um, it is uh, so wildly unlikely to happen to you that um, that it is not something to really bank upon. If you're going to become a fiction writer, uh, you'll have to understand that it's going to take a while for your career to spin up um, money-wise. Hmm. Um, and that's just something to build into it and to expect. Uh, if you're even lucky enough to be able to make a living as a writer, which is not guaranteed. Um, so during this like sort of six, six to eight-year period where you're writing on average two books a year and you haven't you haven't sold any books yet so you're not making any any money off off the writing itself how did you keep yourself going that this is what i want to do and i can i can see the light at the end of the tunnel like what 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 was the thought process back then yeah i often talk about kind of one of the big moments in my career happened before i had a career and this is when i was writing those uh those those back novels the 10 through 13 where i was starting to think all right. Um, everyone told me that this was a really hard job to do and that uh, my chances were, were really slim, which, by the way, they are less slim than people will tell you. Um, my experience has been that people who 
really dedicate themselves to the craft and things. It's more like one out of 20 or 30 who end up going on to have a career uh, as opposed to one out of a million, like everyone told me. Um, but I mean, if you went to med school and they said, yeah, you're going to go through all of med school and you're going to have a one out of 20 chance of becoming a doctor. I think maybe you would have rethought, uh, some of what you were doing. It's still, you, it's still a difficult job to get to work because it's in entertainment, but it's not, it's not as crazy difficult as people pretend it is, but that's different conversation. Um, during those years, I'm like, okay, maybe I'm, you know, one of the 19, uh, who really enjoys this but it's just not writing things that match the market really well. Um, and maybe I will not ever have a career. Uh, and I kind of came to the decision that I had to be okay with that, right? Um, that writing was something I did because first and foremost, I really loved doing it. And I thought, think it makes me a better, made me a better person. I use the, the metaphor of uh, basketball, actually, to, to mix metaphors uh, a little bit between writing and sports. But I have friends who go play basketball. I mean, we're in our 40s. Uh, none of us are going to the NBA, right? Um, but I have friends that, you know, regularly, they'll just go play basketball. <clears throat> Why? They enjoy it. It's good for them. Um, it, it's really a great thing. And, you know, um, my publicist loves to go golfing. He is not going to end up on the PGA tour. That's just, you know, not a thing that's going to happen in his life. Uh, but nobody asks him, when are you going to go pro? But if you start writing a book, people will ask you, when are you going to publish it? When will you monetize this thing? And don't get me wrong. I think monetizing the thing that you're working on is totally a great idea. Um, and maybe we'll talk more about that and things like that. But um, understand that if you want... Um, if you want a stable career and you want to earn well, writing is not the thing to do. That's not the reason to do it. Um, I, I kind of made this decision. I said, you know what? If I hit, <clears throat> let's be aspirational. If I hit, you know, age 99 and I have written a hundred novels that have not been published, um, that's okay. You know what? I'm a bigger success than if I give up now because I'm giving up on something that I truly love. And maybe I have to scale back, get a, get a real job, quote unquote. Um, I was in grad school at the time. Get a real job, uh, have a real career, find something that I enjoy, and writing becomes my hobby. Um, and I was okay with that. Uh, I didn't want that to happen, but I was okay with it. I was willing to take that and go with it. Uh, and that was a big, important sort of moment for me. Um, realizing that I legitimately just enjoyed doing this. Uh, it was extremely fulfilling um, and I was going to keep going. Uh, and for me, I got lucky, right? Uh, I'm the one out of 20. <clears throat> um, I'm the one that uh, what I happen to write matches the market really well. Uh, I have some natural talent I've been able to expand upon and I was in the right place at the right time uh, for a number of publishing uh, opportunities and my career has really worked out. Um, I have friends, though, who they're also the one out of 20. Um, they aren't, um, you know, bestsellers, but they've made a career out of writing. And uh, they enjoy it just as much. Um, and so it's, you don't have to become astronomically successful to have a career. Uh, but you do have to be willing to take that risk that maybe you won't have a career and this will be your hobby. Um, and just a dedicated hobby that is a big part of your self-identity most likely for most writers hmm. yeah so it's as as part of this equation of 
you know, help, help helping us figure out what to do, what to do with our lives. <laughs> in a way, it, it it seems like there's broadly like two strands of it. There's one strand which is a find find something that you enjoy and do it, and then there's another strand which is like find enjoyment in the things that you're doing. And it sounds like for you, writing writing was that thing of you found something you were passionate about and you found that you that 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 you enjoyed it as well do you have any 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 thoughts or advice for people who are in that position where they're like i'm not really sure what i'm passionate about like what how how do you how do you how do you think about that yeah um it is kind of hard uh in some ways because um i've noticed this in some of my friends uh some of my roommates in college and things like this where i had this all-consuming passion and I was going for broke, right? If I didn't end up, end up selling, um, my fallback jobs were um, were not the same sort of caliber, right? It's I end up becoming an insurance salesman or something, right? Um, I I couldn't really have even become a professor because becoming, at least in the states, uh, an English professor um, requires certain hoops to jump through by, uh, for PhDs and things that I just was not doing in grad school. Um, I wasn't working on the papers and the journals and all this stuff. Um, and so I was all in on this. And uh, I had a roommate who one, at one point told me, you know, Brandon, not all of us are like that. I, I do not have an all-consuming passion. I want to find a job. I want to enjoy it. And then I want to come home and play video games. Um, and that is still how he is. He's, he's in my writing group. Uh, and, you know, I basically, I was kind of myopic. Uh, early before in my pre-published years, because I kind of had this everyone must have this all-consuming passion sort of thing, which I just don't think is true. Um, I think there are a lot of very fulfilling jobs out there. And in fact, one of the things that I often say to people is if you are a writer, if you really like writing, um, programming and writing feel very similar. In fact, I had to stop taking, I took a programming class in college and after it, I'm like, I can never take another one of these because that semester was the hardest I ever had writing because I would do my homework and then I'd feel like I'd already written for the day when I'd been coding um, and it would leave me kind of mentally exhausted. And most of my other classes use a different part of my brain. Um, coding is basically writing. It's the same sort of thing. When you're writing a novel, you are problem solving how to achieve these things you want to, these results you want to get out. And, you know, the output is reader investment in emotion rather than the outputs that you might have for the object you're, uh, you're, you're coding or something like this. But um, I think that you can, um, humans are kind of, uh, they're things that drive us. One is creativity, being able to make something, but another is serving people. Um, I actually think the best uh i had a lot of fun working a graveyard shift at the hotel being able to be the person that at night when somebody needed something at the hotel i just got it for them i made i made them happy i i didn't have to sell a single thing because no one was coming in and buying rooms i was just there to make their experience better and i found that wildly fulfilling um shockingly fulfilling for me now of course i was writing at the same time i'm at the front desk typing away, interrupted to go get somebody something they need. Um, and so it was okay. It was kind of a, a good match of the two things. Um, but um, I think that we just, you know, acknowledging what it is that, that human beings generally find fulfilling, finding out what it is you find fulfilling. Um, is it finding a need and fulfilling it? Is it being able to be creative? Is it problem solving? 
Uh, you can find these general groupings of things that you happen to find satisfying, fulfilling, and you can then find a whole bunch of different careers um, and things that that target in that uh, that uh, that that grouping of yours. And just like writing computer programming, you're very similar. There's a lot of things like that out there. Um, and I often say, you know, try a bunch of different things. I wish that our our um, college and profession. Um, building, uh, how can I even phrase this? Uh, the way that we prepare people for the workplace, I wish it involved a lot more variety. Um, I wish there were more opportunities for us to try different things out, try different jobs out, try different majors out, um, you know, and, and really find what people find fulfilling in them. Because if I hadn't had this teacher get me into reading, who knows what would have happened with me, right? Um, and I, everyone thought I was a reluctant reader, that I didn't like reading, uh, when the truth was I just had not found the right books yet. It was the world building in fantasy novels that made the difference, and then I became a huge reader. But before that, my teachers were saying to my parents, like, he just doesn't like reading. Um, he's just not a reader. Find a career for him that doesn't involve a lot of that. Hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting how just – sort of the right person at the right at the right place at the right time can completely change the trajectory of your life <laughs> and i've definitely had that ha happen a few times a few times with me it's it's interesting this thing you say about about the graveyard shifts at at, at the hotel you were working at because because that was basically exactly what i was doing on my night shifts at the hospital <laughs> where i i used to really enjoy night shifts because generally it's quite quiet you don't usually have new patients coming in the door and it's normally just a case of a nurse rings you up or bleeps you and wants something prescribed for their patients. And because the hospital I was working at had like electronic prescribing, I could sit at the front desk in their plushy kind of chairs with like two computer screens in front of me, one that had the electronic health record and the other one that had like a document open where I was planning my YouTube videos. And I'd get a call, I'd prescribe the thing or occasionally go see a patient. But I, I, got, I got so much like non-doctor stuff done during those shifts. So I used to really, really enjoy night shifts. And all my friends used to be like, yeah, oh, my God. I, I went <laughs> yeah. and found one on purpose. Um, I actually had <clears throat> known someone who worked as a security guard and was like, wow, I get to read all kinds of books at night. It's great. And I thought, you know, I'm a night owl. I should find a job like that. And I went and tried actively to find one. Um, and, like, I was very upfront with the people at the hotel. I said, I'm doing this because I want to spend – I want to have some free time at work to work on my writing. And they're like, great. The last guy we had fell asleep on the couch. Um <laughs> This doesn't work for everyone, by the way. Those who are listening, like, ooh, I'm going to go become a graveyard shift uh, clerk. Be aware that larger hotels <clears throat> generally have things they expect the night auditors to do. They don't let like, just sit at the desk and not do stuff. You're like folding towels or things like that. I found a job, luckily, that didn't do that. But also, a lot of people just aren't productive during those hours. Um, I've had a friend who wanted to become a writer who went and got a job at the same place that I had worked, and it was a disaster. Um, it was, you know, several months of him trying to adjust his schedule to do the Brandon shift and it not working at all. Um, and it just happened that that was how I'd worked since high school. I had actually generally in high school, I was staying up late, going to sleep for four hours, going to school, coming home and sleeping for another four hours and then getting up, um, which was a, an odd schedule for a high school student. And I don't recommend it. Uh, but I was basically already doing this. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, this is something I'm 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 starting to look into as well. This idea of everyone has their own, everyone has a specific chronotype in terms of are you a night owl, are you an early bird, and 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 so on. 
And so I've got some friends who are really into sports medicine where they analyze athletes to figure out their optimum performance. So I'm going to try and get one of them on, on my YouTube channel so I can have this analysis done for free. Um, <laughs> I find that yeah. all really interesting because um, I don't think we really know yet, right? Like it seems all very speculative when I read about it. Um, and I, I don't know how, all I know is that I generally keep falling into the same sleep schedule. I tried to get off of it when I was first married and my wife was not thrilled by the idea of, you know, me going to bed at four or five um, and her getting up at six for school. Um, and so for, for a few months, I, I tried my best and it was just miserable. Uh, I did not adjust. And eventually she's like, okay, just go back to your schedule. Uh, this, this is miserable for both of us. Nice. <laughs> so we, we've got a couple of questions from the chat um, that, we, that we can take now. So um, one of them is uh, from Angus, our producer, who is, who was your biggest inspiration in terms of authors and who inspired you to write? Um, I usually answer this by there's there's a few authors that were really uh, foundational to me. Uh, the first book I read was Dragonsbane by Barbara Hamlet. Um, and that was the book that worked for me to pull me into it. Uh, it's a lesser known novel. Um, and I still really love it. Um, I would say I was more influenced as a writer, though, by um, by Anne McCaffrey, um, who was a big fantasy writer at the time um, and uh, just a fantastic all around uh, writer. Um, a couple other writers, um, Guy Gabriel Kay's ability to write single volume epic fantasies um, just astounded me when I was younger. And he still continues to write fantastic things. Uh, criminally underread. Uh, Guy Gabriel K, for those who don't know, uh, was one of the people who helped Christopher Tolkien put the Silmarillion together. Um, and to this day, uh, he won't admit how much he had to do with it, uh, even even to authors like me. But uh, he was uh, he maybe kind of did for the Silmarillion what I did for the Wheel of Time. Mm -hmm. um, the Wheel of Time, also another big inspiration for me. It was the first really big epic fantasy series that I got into. Uh, and I also usually mention an author uh, called Melanie Ron. Uh, she's, again, lesser known these days, but she did some really interesting things with magic systems that I read early on in my career that made me say, you know, I really like this sort of thing. Uh, maybe I can do something like this. Sweet. Um, and we've got a question from Seamus Gregan who says, what do you read these days and how much do you read among, amongst your other, <laughs> amongst your writing? Right. Um, so not as much reading time as I used to have. Uh, this is very common for writers, uh, and a lot of my reading, also very common for writers, is new authors' books to potentially give them blurbs, books by my friends who are having books come out that I want to be able to chat with them about their uh, their writing, the kind of leaders in the industry that for some reason or another I haven't picked up on and need to read just to know what everyone is reading, and student works. Uh, and that's it kind of... Um, there's very little of me going to the uh, the bookstore and being like, oh, what came in this month? My reading is almost always targeted. It's like this new book is being uh, has been acquired and it, this this author could really use a boost. Let me see if I like the book uh, so I can give them a good review um, or this book is everyone is talking about in the industry. I better know what's going on in that book so that I I know what the trends are um, or oh, one of my students just published a book. I got to read their book, uh, you know. This sort of thing um, and keeping just keeping up on my friends books is uh, is a challenge. Right. Uh, my good friends the and even kind of my writing partners at times, keeping up on all the things they're doing. 
uh, is almost a full-time job unto itself. So uh, I did, um, I can give you a recommendation. Probably the best book I read last year, it's not out yet, um, it was Andy Weir's new book. He wrote The Martian. Uh, he's got a new book coming out in May uh, called Project Hail Mary, and I just loved it. Uh, I got an early copy of that. And that was more of a um, the rare sort of thing where I really like his work, so I just got an early copy and read it. Because I uh, rather than he doesn't really need me boosting him, he's got Matt Damon <laughs> based on his books and stuff like that. So, uh, but I just wanted to read it, uh, and so uh, that's author privilege. I got to I got to grab uh, early books now and then of things that I like. Nice. I've just pre-ordered it on Amazon, so thank you for that recommendation. Yeah, what? if you like the the Martian, you will like this. Um, it's uh, it's more science fictiony. It's more like a more hard science fiction, which I really appreciated. Like I lo- love the Martian. Don't get me wrong, but uh, this is a little bit more uh, more hard science fictiony, um, and it also has, I think, a more interesting character. Uh, the character for the Martian is really fun. This character, um, Andy's stretching a little bit, uh, working, uh, you know, doing something a little bit harder, and it pays off in the book. Um, I really enjoyed what he did with the character. Hmm. When you're reading a book, so like when I'm reading a book, uh, uh, like a, an, an epic fantasy or something, I am not reading it with a very critical kind of eye. I'm just sort of enjoying it, and it's a, it's a page turner. I'm like, oh, this is really cool, and like, oh my god, like this is such an epic moment. Do you, uh, how does, how does your reading of these sorts of books change given that you're a writer? Yeah, it changed quite a bit, particularly early in my career. Um, and I stopped really being able to enjoy books in the same fun way I had enjoyed them before. Um, and that was rough for a while. You'll find this with a lot of writers, right in their kind of journeyman stage as a writer. Uh, they're having trouble getting through books. Um, and then, you kind of come out the other side changed. Um, at least for me, what happened is I gained kind of this this grand appreciation for the art form of storytelling uh, that I didn't have before. And now um, the biggest change is I don't finish books that I'm I'm that I'm not getting anything out of. Uh, and when I was younger, I just I finished everything, even if I didn't like the book. Now I put it down if I don't. Uh, that's a big change. But now I spend my time kind of impressed and in awe of the writer's skill and being like, wow, I can't believe they pulled that off. Oh, that's a really interesting thing to try in this type of book. Um, basically, it's, it's me hopefully learning from them, but also just kind of appreciating the craftsmanship of storytelling mm. that is going into their books. Um, and I really enjoy that. I find it more satisfying in, in many ways. Um, and I appreciate books kind of differently, but I have lost kind of just that that wonder that was to reading when I was younger. And that happens to a lot of people as you become a professional. Same thing in like, you know, video games or movies. You spend too much time working on movies and you instead of seeing the movie, you'll see the shot that the cinematographer is setting up and be like, wow, that's a really interesting shot. Well, if you're thinking that the movie is not working at its core for the reason it's supposed to work on you, but it can work on a uh, on a different level. And that hasn't really happened to me with movies. Like while I'm watching the movie, I just love and appreciate the movie. Um, afterward, I do a lot of analysis in my brain, kind mm. of talking to myself about the story and stuff. But during it, I tend to still just get caught up in the storytelling. Mm. So one book I have on my on, on my desk at all times is Austin Kleon's Steal Like an Artist. Uh, I don't know if you come across it. Uh, how do you how do you think about like other fantasy writers and like getting inspiration from them and and also vice versa, like 
you're such a huge name in fantasy that lots of people are probably now massively inspired by you. So how do you how do you think about that in terms of like ideas and collaboration and plagiarism and all all, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, so I think in general, um, authors worry a little too much about um, coming off as um, derivative and things like this. Um, now your early books are going to feel really derivative. That does happen. Like my, my first unpublished book feels very derivative. Um, but you know, this is why we don't publish our first books and it's really okay. Like, um, I am never going to fear, like, I'm not one that's afraid of being plagiarized, right? Like you Authors develop their own voices and their own ways of doing things. And if you give two authors the same concept, they will come up with wildly different books. Um, and I think that really the way that human creativity works is recombination. Um, we remix. That's what we're really good at. We don't, uh, we don't come up with a new wholesale creature. We put a horn on a horse and like, look at that. That's cool. Um, that's like how we create. Uh, just kind of on a fundamental letter level. We don't imagine a color that we've never seen. Our brains aren't equipped for that. Um, what we can do is we can imagine, you know, something that is uh, usually one color with a different color and kind of play with that um, and theme and things like that. So um, I do think that you do have to be worried about um, a little bit about being derivative, but not terribly much. Uh, in my class with my students, I talk about the difference between what I call a chef and a cook. Um, I am a cook when it comes to actual food. This means you give me a recipe and I can follow it and generally get the thing that I'm supposed to be making. But if I do something wrong or if I haven't accounted for something, I have no idea how to fix it, right? Um, if, the, if the recipe just doesn't turn out, I'll have just no clue. Uh, a chef would be able to say, oh, you're at a different elevation. That causes this effect. That's why this bake turned out differently. Um, you need to do this, this thing, and this, and, and tweak this. Or your butter was melted, and you know it was too melty, and so you got this result. Um, as a writer, I encourage um, my students to try to think of themselves like chefs rather than cooks, which is train yourself to look at something you love and break it down to why you love it on a fundamental level and then rebuild it into something that is your own. Um, and I think that's just a, a very useful skill for creators to have. Um, and this is where, you know, you start to make these connections where you're like, wow, a buddy cop movie and, uh, and a, co and a um, romantic comedy often have the same plot structure. Why is that? Why, what are we, what are we loving about these things? How can I use an element from that? What is a heist? I love heist movies. Can I create, and you end up with something really cool like Inception, which is a heist, but unlike any you've ever seen, it follows the heist beats really well, but it still feels wholly original because, you know, Christopher Nolan and his brother have broken this thing down and looked at what they really love about what makes a heist work. And then they have created their own uh, version of it that does something new and original. And um, that's, you can learn to do that. If you can learn to, uh, to boil it down to what you love and take that core element and build something new around it, you will be a successful storyteller, I am convinced. Yeah, it's 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 exactly the same with 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 for example YouTube as well. Like I I teach a lot of people how to how to do well in YouTube, and it really is this case of you know look at other people that you like the videos of, figure it out, figure out what it is about those things that you like, and then think about incorporating those into your thing, into your own videos, and not worrying too much about like originality at the start because 
in your quest to be like you know someone else that you like you'll end up finding your own voice and kind of doing it doing it your own way yeah uh, i actually kind of noticed this in youtube i i like um i like the kind of infotainment youtube quite a bit um and the video essays and things like that mm -hmm. and years ago bill wirtz uh dropped a kind of history of japan video and then it was wildly successful it's this awesome piece of media it's really innovative and interesting. And then you just basically didn't do anything more like that. Well, like, you know, five, seven years later, wherever we are now, there's like entire channels that are based around these kind of comedic retelling of factual events um, that kind of owe their DNA to Bill Wirtz doing this thing and it being really successful. And then just, you know, he wants to go off and make music. Um, and so he does that instead. And um, it, they all feel different. They all feel original. Um, and they're all feeling this this hole that nobody knew that they wanted, uh, but they did. And it's kind of been fun to really watch that. And a few of them even acknowledge, hey, I watched this Bill Wirtz video. No one was making these things. So now I am I'm doing it. Um, and, you know, a lot of these things have hundreds of thousands of subscribers and are making really interesting uh, uh, original content. All because one person made this thing uh, that had such an effect on the market, so to speak, the industry. So changing, changing gears a little bit, uh, we talked a bit earlier about um, the idea of finding something that you're passionate about and, and going for that. And, and you were kind of lucky in a way because you found this thing writing that you were super passionate about. I'd love to get your thoughts on the other side of the equation, which is finding joy in the things that we're doing. And there was a quote from one of your, one of, I think from one of your classes where, where you said success is success involves making yourself do the things you want to have done. I wonder if you can just kind of riff on that for a little bit. Yeah, I totally can. Um, this is kind of a, a hobby horse of mine, so to speak, a personal philosophy, if you will. Um, like I truly enjoy writing, but it is also still work, right? And there are parts of it I like less than other parts. And the part I like the most is writing the end and then letting people read the book. The experience of knowing people now get to read this thing that I've created. That's like, you know, that's just, that's the top. That's what I want to do. Um, but to get there, I need to spend between six and 18 months working on a story um, in a dedicated, very slow and steady way in order to have this thing that I can show to people. And some of those days, I'm really going to love working on it. And uh, most of those days, I'm going to be like, once I get into it, I'm really enjoying it but I have to force myself to start working, right? Uh, as much as I enjoy writing, playing another game of civilization would probably be more pure dopamine hit uh, joy um, than working on my books. And um, so I've kind of uh, looked at my career and how I made myself do stuff. Uh, early in my career, before I got published, uh, it was uh, a stick instead of a carrot. Um, I saw... I joked that I saw a phantom cubicle chasing me. And if I didn't write my books, I was going to have to let it capture me um, and spit me out as a salesman or something like that. Um, but very quickly, that stopped being a good motivation for me. Um, and what started working was me realizing I love watching numbers count up on a spreadsheet. Um, and the simple fact of keeping track of my daily word count would make me more likely to write the next day because I liked seeing myself inch closer and closer to that goal of finishing something. And finishing it was so satisfying that I was able to kind of defer that and be like, each day I have finished something and the the, the percentage counts up 
and I'm that much closer to being finished. Um, and that works really well for me. We talk about gamification. That's a, that's a bit of a, you know, experience bar gamification. Um, at times in my life, um, a carrot has worked also. Um, it stopped working as soon as I got even a little bit of success. Um, early before I, you know, when I was newer and younger, it could be like, I, my, my nerd hobby is Magic the Gathering, right? And I could be like, you know, um, I can open a pack of magic cards if I if I finish my work for whatever this this week or whatever. Uh, I can open up one of these packs and look at my new cards. Um, once I achieved success to the point that a pack of magic cards was no longer like I could buy a hundred packs each day and it wouldn't uh, noticeably affect my bank account. Uh, the um, the carrot stopped being effective for me, um, and fortunately. I had this whole structure in place by then once it became a career because, uh, you know, earlier in my career, one of the things that uh, was is interesting is that my writing time was in many ways more precious because I only had those few hours at night. And during the day, I wouldn't be able to write too much school going on, homework, all of these things. And so at when midnight rolled around at uh, work at the hotel and I had that time to write, um, that was precious time to me. And before I got that job, I even it was even more precious because I couldn't write at work. And so I'd have like an hour, uh, you know, uh, a week or things like this, where it's just like this time is my golden time. And I cherished it. Um, it became harder to write when I got more time in some ways, because suddenly writing time was not a precious commodity uh, in the same way. And so having basically um, I talk about learning to hack your brain, find out what motivates you on a day-to-day -day basis um, and figure out how your brain works and the things you can do kind of to trick yourself into doing what you want to have done. Because if you do this the right way, the days become very satisfying. Um, and you'll notice like for me, if I get my word count um, and then I get to go play a video game for a couple of hours and I've also spent three hours with my kids playing their games or doing things with them and a couple hours with my wife doing what, what she wants to do. When I retire for the day, I just feel incredibly fulfilled, right? Like I've got good family time. I've gotten so much of my work done because I've made myself do it. I even had a few hours just to goof off. And, you know, recently it was playing Bowser's Fury on the Switch, right? I'm like, hey, my kid bought this. Let's uh, let's play an old school Mario game. Um and, you know, it's just, it's a really light, good balance for me. Um, so other people work in different ways. There are people who, that binging is better. Uh, there are binge writers who are like, I need three months to write a book and to do nothing else during that time. And then I spend the other nine months of the, of the year just kind of gearing up for the next book, doing some revisions and, uh, and things like this. Uh, that's not me. Slow and steady. Make every day satisfying. Um, don't put off to be like, I'll be happy in the future. Be happy now. Um, by, by making a good work-life balance uh, and spending time with family. And, um, and you know what? It is just pretty wonderful. Um, I, I highly recommend getting to a place in your life where you are feeling like that when you, when you go to bed each day. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, it's, it's kind of funny because often if, I, if, I'm, if I'm interviewed on a podcast or something and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this topic, the line that I just land on is journey before destination. <laughs> and I think that's just, that's just such a good like mantra for life. And it seems like you've really, you're really kind of living that yourself. <laughs> yeah. A lot of uh, artists and writers I know, um, they do not have a good balance in life. And people often come to me and they're like, why are you so prolific? 
and I'm really not. Um, if you look back at the the highly profit, prolific writers during the pulp days, when it was if they didn't turn in their pages, you know, they got paid by the word, so they turned in their pages, um, and the pay was not good. Uh, these people were doing um, way more than me, um, but um, I feel like we. Uh, Artists just don't tend to have good structures in life built around helping them get to uh, product, productive, effective, long-term productivity, right? Um, that other other businesses do. They they kind of understand this, and uh, you know, there's like this entire culture at places like Google centered around let's make sure that you remain productive for a for a long time. Um, and writers have to be self motivated. No one's there. Um, telling you do your work like um, you don't have a lot of external motivation. My my roommate in college, uh, Tom, he he picked his major by looking at which majors earn the most with only a four year degree. If he didn't want to go to professional uh, school or to uh, get an advanced degree, what would be the highest earning? And at that time, at the school he w- we went to, it was chemical engineering. So we just picked that. And they had a very rigid schedule for four years. If you wanted to be a chemical engineer, like every class was picked for you. Um, and you were taking these classes. I assume you have maybe had some of this uh, in your life where it's like, you know, you try really hard to get a 65% on the test um, because that's, you know, that's going to be a B. You're going to be fine. Uh, where I'm over here in English where, you know, we're dancing through fields and flowers and talking about our feelings and reading Jane Austen. Um, and nobody is saying, you know, here's what you do to actually turn into an author. They're all just kind of talking about our feelings. And, you know, if you, if you get 65 on a test, then you're just like mortified. Um, like that's just not okay. Uh, and these two different worlds couldn't be more opposite. And I think a lot of artists are in this kind of thing, particularly writers, because even in the visual arts, you end up with people who can kind of counsel more, but so few people understand how to make a living as a writer that you end up with all these people just kind of bumbling through it on their own. And it's, it's no wonder that they don't have, you know, good work-life balance and things like this. Cause how do you build habits like this when no one talks about it? Uh, when everyone says what you do is you feel your inner muse. And then when your inner muse speaks to you, you let it out and this color flows onto the page. That's how you write a book. Um, and you sit in these classes, you're like, Okay, uh, but then what, right? Um, and so, anyway, I, I feel like writing has a lot of dysfunctional people who are uh, or function. They, they're good, you know. They're trying very hard, but their lives, through no fault of their own, have become very dysfunctional. Mm. Yeah, there's a there's a quote that I think uh, again from one of your one of your YouTube videos, uh, which was or which was probably from one of your one of your classes, which is that you you think of yourself as an artist with the work ethic of an accountant. <laughs> is is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. That my mom was an accountant uh, before she retired, and she uh, she taught me good work ethic when I was young, and she doesn't understand fantasy novels. Uh, she kind of she reads my books because they're mine, but. She, uh, she trained me in a really solid work ethic. Like I had a job when I was 14 and, uh, it was paper route, right? Like a a little self-employed thing. And there were, she was setting up, you know, these kind of ways that I go about it, how I accounted. I had to account it myself, kid of an accountant. Right. Um, and I applied a lot of that to becoming a writer, uh, because I am more ahead in the clouds type person, um, than I am naturally an accountant, but I had that really good training as a kid and it has served me very well. Hmm. 
yeah i think for for a lot of people it's a bit and like for for all of us it's really this this balance of like how 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 can we make like how can how can we make the stuff that we're doing more fun so that we're we, we actually do it and, it, and it, it, in, in a way it does need us to talk ourselves into doing it like there's a lot of times where i can't be bothered to film a youtube video but i do it anyway and then once i get started i'm like oh i'm i'm you know this is kind of fun because i i like the sound of my own voice and then when i'm done with it i'm like oh this is great and i've ju- i've just done another video and i'm so glad i forced myself to do it at that and that early stage and i think if you fall off at that early stage then then things don't necessarily work yeah yeah totally uh, and this is so important in doing any sort of self-motivated artistic uh or creative pursuit um like youtube though you know we could talk for hours i don't want to go down this path but i do think there are some dysfunctional things about the way that we treat work in society um and the way that we we like um i worry a lot about uh you know what we do to doctors uh to, to be relevant there's this this sense that um, I don't know how it is uh, where where you live, but over here it's like your first ten years are going to be miserable, but then life will be good after that. Uh, you're going to work these in, in incredible shifts, and it's like we have to make the doctors feel pain to make sure that they deserve then having a higher than standard uh, living wage later on. I just think that's a terrible idea. I think it's an awful thing to be training people. Um, I think it's awful. Uh, to be training people that if they want to become attorneys, that they're going to have to go through hell in order to end up being an attorney. Um, And that's the way we gatekeep who gets to become our attorneys is the people that are willing to suffer through hell. Um, I think it's just terrible. Um, And I also kind of think that in general business practices, uh, making one of the things that makes us want to work is ownership. Um, And I don't know that people are proportionally rewarded for their work in a lot of businesses. Um, and it's, uh, it's important to me, for instance, that, um, my kind of full-time, uh, employees and partners, uh, they have, you know, a percentage of what I make, uh, as a bonus every year. And even though it's kind of smaller, it's real and they are part of this when, you know, my art director is working on a book and, uh, you know, he's pouring his creative, uh, energy into making this book. It is his, uh, passion as much as it is mine, even though I, you know, I've done the bulk of the words, like he is lending his true, genuine artistic talent to doing the maps and the symbols and the things. Uh, this is Isaac Stewart. He deserves a cut of that, not just a, you know, a salary in my opinion. Um, and I, I think that we, we, we disproportionately reward, uh, in our society based on where someone falls in a certain ladder and things like that. Uh, but that's a different conversation. But it's so hard to feel investment for something you're working on um, when they say you're part of our family or things like this, which is very common in corporate speak over here. But you don't get a cut of the profit. You're just part of our family. Aren't it, isn't it great? We're a family. Um, and, you know, people need to be allowed ownership over the things that they create, because that is how one of the reasons we feel fulfilled is this thing that we have created that we're part of. Um, is making people's lives better in some way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Just on that note, one thing I'm one thing I'm curious about because I've I've been thinking about this for my team, uh, sort of who's helping me with the kind of the YouTube and the business and stuff. Do you do the sort of percentage of profits overall from the business, or is it like on a per project basis, or like how 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 do you work this out for you, for you and your team? Uh, so for my team, it is um, I, I basically have two baskets. 
Um, the first basket is kind of what I call my officers. Um, these are the people who've been with me for a long time. They work for me full time and they're involved basically in everything I'm doing to some extent or another. Um, and these people get a percentage off of the net that the company makes. Basically, it's what what the company is going to pay taxes on or what I'm going to pay taxes on uh, since it, it actually just kind of flows through to me the way the car company works. So what I pay taxes on, a percentage of that is, is a yearly bonus that is not counting their salary. I still pay them a salary um, at going at market rate. And then there's this on top of it. Mm. Uh, the other basket is the people who work on my store. Um, and these are the people that are kind of doing the online orders, our Kickstarter um, and things like that. Um, and their bonuses are based on store revenue directly rather than the whole book's revenue. Um, and so we kind of have those two different baskets for people. Mm. Um, and, you know, when I hired my very first employee, uh, this is Peter Alstrom. He's my editorial director. Um, and he had been for years um, working with me and just for free as a friend, reading my books and offering feedback. And his feedback was just fantastic. He eventually became a professional editor working at Tokyo Pop, um, bringing manga over to the U.S. and uh, and things like that. And I hired him and I said, um, you know, I want to give you a percent. Um, right now, the business is not huge. I hope that this someday will be worth lots. But it's important to me that, you know, that your creative energy because i feel that accountants are creative i feel that uh that editors are creative like it's a different kind of creativity my mom always says i'm not creative at all i'm like the way that you have set up your life is super creative um and right from the get-go i said i think this is important i feel like i wouldn't want to be involved in something unless i was seeing um part ownership to me mm. and that percentage is uh is actually theirs to pass on to their descendants like it's it's not just um you know a wage working for me. It is like they have built with me this business and a piece of it is theirs. Um, and uh, that's every time I've gone, you know, usually it takes a few years of someone working here before I invite them on as an officer um, and things like that. But it is the way that I approach my business. And um, you know what? I think it is the moral way and I'm not saying that there aren't other businesses that do this. They do this with stock in a lot of companies. It's totally, it totally happens. I just feel like it doesn't happen on the extent um, that uh, perhaps it should. It's like you have to fight for these things as, an, as, an, as a worker rather than it being offered directly to you. Uh, I don't like this sort of community where people don't talk about their salaries and uh, corporations try to get what, uh, whatever they can out of the people working for them. Um, this is just, this is just not a good way to have productive, fulfilled, uh, people working at the company. Um, and there's my diatribe, diatribe out, you know, <laughs> I basically barely know what I'm talking about. I have like, you know, 20 employees. What do I know about large scale corporate, uh, sort of things. But, um, but as a small business owner, uh, these are my philosophies. On the note of money, one thing I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. So you sold Elantris when, when you were 30 uh for like a few a few thousand dollars uh, and and now you're like phenomenally successful like at what point did you get to the point where you didn't really have to worry slash think about about money anymore um so my income basically doubled every year until it plateaued at my current state um and i would say that it was right around that you know the twenty thousand mark 
um, every like contract I did doubled. It wasn't a yearly double, uh, if that makes sense. Um, the 20,000 mark, not enough, right? Um, right about when I was at that 80,000, um, I was starting to be like, all right, I feel good. Uh, because what people don't know is, uh, is 80,000 probably sounds like a lot to a lot of people there, but that's 80,000 minus 15% to the agent mm. minus seven and a half percent self-employment tax minus because I'm in the States and we're weird and dumb over here, minus health and uh, healthcare, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, my, once you minus all of that stuff, um, then suddenly you are at kind of a, a normal, comfortable, um, that's where I felt comfortable, where I'm like, if I can make this for the rest of my life, I can make this work. I can have a modest house. I can support a family. Um, we are good. Um, when it when it started at the, to hit the like 300,000 mark, that's when I'm like, oh, suddenly money is just irrelevant to me. Um, to It starts there. Um, and actually, um, early on, right around the like 40,000 a year mark, I went and got a financial planner and I said, I'm in a volatile field. Um, I want to get to where I am completely self uh, independent and I want to be there. You know, uh, I want to be there if I can possibly make it. I want to be there by like 60, right? Um, a little earlier than most people um, and things like that. Uh, I made it at, at about 37, um, uh, maybe even a little younger than that. Um, where we had had saved enough and we had had this plan and we put everything into it that if no more money came in, I could live with a modest house and a kind of normal lifestyle for the rest of my life, presuming I lasted into my 90s um, and never have to worry about money again. And that was hugely freeing. Um, that's you know a smaller amount than you might think because really, um, if you own your house, because another thing we're doing is paying off our house, which strictly monetarily does not make mm. sense. You can probably invest that money um, and do better against your interest rate. But there's a certain peace of mind to being an artist who knows that you don't have a house payment. You uh, can live on this budgeted amount, um, you know, for um, a, sing a single car and this much food and saving, you know, for uh, you've already, you know, one of the things I put in is like kids futures and stuff like that. When that's all taken care of, um, that's basically when I quote unquote retired, that's when I no longer ever had to take a contract I didn't want or things like that. And I was working kind of solely for myself and for the joy of creating, um, something, uh, and that, like I said, that hit pretty early in my career, um, relatively, um, 30, you know, it took me seven or eight years, I would guess. Uh, but I had a string of, uh, of very fortunate occurrences, right? Being able to write on the wheel of time was just a huge, um, a huge boon uh, to me in my life. And um, I would have done that for free because, number one, I loved the books growing up. Um, and number two, I knew it was a, basically a chance to put my uh, business card in the pockets of several million fans of Epic Fantasy. Uh, people talk about exposure being worthless. Um, that is most people who will try to take, get you to take exposure, uh, for work are indeed trying to scam you, but there are certain opportunities that legitimately are worth it. But because Harriet, who is Robert Jordan's widow is like a good person and things like this, they paid me a very generous salary on top of that. Um, you know, like, uh, the exposure, they, they paid me like they were paying someone to finish the wheel of time. Um, and that money um, up front went into those bank accounts and was what made me financially independent. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'll always be thankful to Harriet because she knew I would have done it for free and she wasn't willing to let me 
um, do that. Um, and, um, and it was wonderful. Um, and so just some, some good financial planning mixed with a legitimately super lucky windfall in my career and life, uh, turned me into someone who no longer has to worry about money. Nice. Um, given that you're, you're in this position of, of financial independence, to what extent do you still care about, about making money? <laughs> if, if at all. So it's kind of weird, right? Like, um, money really doesn't matter that much. Um, but at the same time, one of the things like my quest right now, what you'd ask me, what is my quest mm. right now? Um, I have two main quests in life. One is to finish the Cosmere sequence and, you know, bring this uh, vision, which is only about halfway done to my fans and, um, and make good on my promises to them starting it. For those who don't know, Cosmere is like the interconnected universe of my books. Um, And the second one is aspiring to uh, create something that has um, large scale cultural significance um uh which is uh, a a level beyond where i am right if you if you look at um the people that i aspire toward it's people like george martin who are like a step above me and have had like i um i'm very well known in the community people love my books i would be totally happy staying where i am for the rest of my career but there is a level up which is having uh cultural significance uh on the level that george managed to have um, and some people like him have managed to have. And that's not going to happen until I um, get a mass media project, um, uh, film or television show. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sales and the money are the things that let me do that and let me do it my way. Um, and so right now, all of this uh, basically exists for a couple of purposes. And uh, one of the main ones is to be able to say no to bad movie deals and have the resources and means to make good movie deals actually happen um, and to be involved in them. Um, and so at that point, that's kind of where it's going right now. Um, and, um, you know, I'm still kind of relatively new to being this successful. Like um, it's uh, like the, the way of came out in 2010 and it did, it is my, my, like it was the, the the last book that I did that didn't chart really high on the bestseller list. It did fine. Uh, it was Words of Radiance where things just started to explode. Um, and so it's been less than 10 years um, that I have had um, the level of means that I have now that I kind of have, uh, have plateaued at this, um, this amount. Uh, and I'm kind of putting that fo- toward that sort of project. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it, making the company better, like, you know, we're, we're installing a pool that's going to be a company pool um, <laughs> and things like that. You know, there, there are some things that I'm doing just to be like, hey, guys, do you guys want a swimming pool? Let's put in a swimming pool. Um, do you guys want a movie theater? Let's put in a movie theater. Uh, my class is actually broadcast from the movie theater uh, right now or to my students. It's not – you can watch the – on my YouTube channel, we're slicing up bits of it and put out. So if you want to get a glimpse of the theater that we're putting in, um, but, you know, that sort of thing, there are definitely fun things I'm doing with it as well. Sick. Um, I know we're on the hour, but if you've if you've got a few more min- more minutes, I've I've got a few more questions yeah. from the chat and some stuff I'd I'd love to ask you. Uh, okay. So with with the book that I'm writing, I am ugh, annoyingly, I'm annoyingly looking at the goal of hitting the New York Times bestseller list. 
and I'm, I, I, I feel dirty admitting it because loads of authors I've, that, 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 that I've seen interviews would say I, there's a lot of baggage associated with having the goal of I want a New York Times bestseller. What was that like for you hitting the list? Uh, and is it, do you think it's a reasonable yeah. goal for someone like me to, <laughs> to, to have in my sights? Or should I, because I feel like it kind of conflicts with the journey before destination, which has become one of my, one of my mantras for life. Well, you know, I don't think it is a bad goal for you to have. Um, and I'll tell you why. Journey before destination doesn't mean don't think about the destination. Um, goals of where we want to get, like, um, yes, you need to enjoy the process of writing the book, you know, or you'll never get to that destination. But the goal is to have a finished book, right? There is a goal there. Um, and for a lot of um, new authors, I would say, don't have hitting the list as a goal on your first book because you can't control that. But you can. You have an audience. You're already established. You're doing a nonfiction book tied into what you actually you do on your YouTube channel. Um, this is a very reasonable goal. Um, in fact, um, I think it is well within um, the means, and it is something that can help you to make the decisions during the journey toward what you want to accomplish. Um, and understanding the list um, and how it happens and things like that is handy in, uh, in this regard. Um, and so, um, yeah, hitting the list the first time was very, it was, a, it was a very gratifying moment because once you hit the list once, you are a bestseller for life, yeah. right? <laughs> you have been a bestseller. Um, and that's really cool. Um, the kind of... Um, Companion to that, though, is that hitting the list is a different thing than a lot of people uh, think it is. Um, books don't generally sell as many copies, um, particularly during the during the what we call the mid list or the the high uh, the low bestsellers or the high mid list that people think. Um, so, in fiction hardcover, to get the very bottom of the list in the years where I was uh, breaking in, you needed about two thousand copies in a week. Oh wow! Um, okay. To, to, to get onto the list. Um, that was, that was kind of your threshold, yeah. uh, because, um, like a, a very successful mid lister would sell 20,000 copies total in its life, uh, in hardcover. That was considered really successful. A launcher sold 10,000, right. For a, for a break brand new author. That was really good. In fact, uh, that's kind of one of the, at least during that era was one of the thresholds. If you were selling 10,000 copies in hardcover, you would never be dropped by your publisher. You would always have a career. Um, that was all considered a successful mid-list book. Um, you would probably even start hitting the bestseller list as, as your name g g grows, more people front load. And the list is all about front loading, right? Uh, you, you can have books that do very well, but you know they're selling 1,900 copies a week and therefore never hitting the list, but they do it for 50 weeks and out, end up outselling the books that hit the list, right? List is a measure of momentum, not a measure of total sales. Um, and so um, having momentum, this is why it's totally valid that you would want to hit the list. I don't know what it is in nonfiction, by the way, and I don't know, it has changed over the years. Like the list is always undergoing these revolutions and mm -hmm. things. When I broke in, uh, there were 25 places on the New York Times bestseller list in fiction. I don't know if there are still 25 places, right? Um, and I hit like number 25 with like 2,200 copies or something like that. Um, uh, and um, so it can vary. To get the top spot um, in fiction during a competitive month on the New York Times, uh, you need 
probably 120,000 copies in a week. Uh, but uh, this is this is kind of weirdly m- changed by uh, ebook plus hardcover. You know, it used to just be hardcovers. Now they have a separate list that's ebooks and hardcovers, but it doesn't count audiobooks. But this other list does count audiobooks and things like that. Um, the New York Times list was really opaque for many years, and no one kind of knew how they were picking their books. Uh, and then the Nielsen ratings for books started happening. And um, at least in fiction, the, the New York Times list pretty much follows the actual sales numbers uh, as recorded in the, in the Nielsen ratings these days. Um, it may be different in nonfiction. More shenanigans happen in nonfiction. Mm. There are more people who um, like have platforms and know how to use them and also have means behind them to perhaps game the list a little bit. I don't think that happens as much as people talk about it happening. Uh, I think the examples of it happening are notable enough that they catch people's attention and they talk about it, but you'd have to ask some nonfiction people what it takes to to hit the list. Um, But um, in a non-competitive month back before eBooks, 22,000 could hit you number one in a week. Um, This was in a January or a February. Um, and I know of one author in sci-fi fantasy who hit number one one time by strategically placing his book in the month that he already had a following. Um, and so if you have a following your book, the, the month doesn't matter as much. You still kind of generally want to release around the holidays. But if you release in quote unquote a bad month, but you already have a following, it's not really going to hurt you the way it will hurts a brand new author. Um, and so they strategically placed their book there and they hit number one with a good campaign and they legitimately sold the copies. They didn't do any shenanigans, but it was very strategic what month they released the book in mm. so that, that from then on that author could always put number one New York Times bestseller on the cover of their book. Um, and so uh, just being kind of strategic about some things like that and having your audience saying to them, look, if you're going to buy the book, I, I did this a lot in my career. It doesn't matter anymore. Um, to me, but uh, early in my career, I said, if you're thinking of buying the book, buying it opening week will help the most because if everyone buys it the same week, you chart higher on the list. A lot of bookstores then put you in favorable placement in the bookstores um, and you get on these like charts and things like that, which generates its own attention. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it helps sales uh, quite a bit to have momentum at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, um, that's kind of like something you really only have to have happen once. Well, really twice. Once to get on the list, once to hit number one if you can. Yep. <laughs> um, and then those two things just are there. But the other thing that's a, that's a part of this, sorry I'm blabbing on this so long. No, this is, this stuff is very interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is good stuff. Um, <laughs> being a bestseller means less than it used to uh, because of Amazon, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, Amazon has their sales ranks, which their actual bestseller list, they don't count that. Sales ranks is the bestseller. Uh, but... but Bestseller is a generic term, um, and so uh, there are a lot of people. You can you can release like a book in you know the subcategory uh, mysteries uh, with involving cats happening in the eighteen hundreds, <laughs> right? Uh, and you can just hit number one in your category um, pretty easily if you if you work on it and be that for a couple of hours, um, and then you're a number one bestseller. Um, and so the New York Times part is actually the important part um, in a lot of ways. And Amazon's bestseller list does not actually count that. They kind of count like the Nielsen's do. They count it for a whole week and things like that. But their bestseller is, is a term that has lost a lot of meaning. Mm. Um, 
And even in the early days, it didn't quite mean what people thought it mean because it means sales momentum. Um, and in the air, in, before the Nielsen ratings, it was sales momentum plus the books that the New York Times thought should be bestsellers mm. uh, that maybe weren't. So there were definitely shenanigans. It's all uh, this is what your readers, uh, your your viewers should keep in mind, and ever should keep in mind. It is a marketing term. Bestseller is a marketing term, um, and uh, it is used like a marketing term. It is not a stamp of quality, um, but it is when it's working right, a stamp of momentum that a book has. Mm. Okay, so reasonable goal to have, but enjoy enjoy the journey mm-hmm. along the way. How yes. uh, how, uh, how much does charting high on the list matter to you these days? If at all, uh, it doesn't matter that much. I don't really stress it. Um, and it, it just, it depends on the list, right? Like the Sunday times I've never hit number one on, I would like to hit n- number one. That's the, the UK's yeah. uh, main list. Uh, the UK is different from the U S in that they have fewer lists. And so it's harder to hit high on those lists. Uh, like if lists are combining fiction and nonfiction, uh, the USA today list, for instance, does this, it's much harder to hit the number one list because you're competing against, uh, a wide different, you know, you're competing against diet books, which can be really hard to compete against in the holidays if you're releasing um, epic fantasy books instead. Um, <laughs> it would be fun to hit the Sunday Times list. Like that's the one that I haven't gotten yet. I uh, I think I've gotten all the other ones, um, but that's historically one of the hardest lists to hit. Uh, so Sunday Times actually means a little bit more than New York Times does. New York Times does this thing where they kind of split into like there's a paperback list and there's a they, they they consolidated recently, but they used to have a nonfiction and a separate business nonfiction list. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it they they had all these lists. So there could be like 20 number ones in a week, uh, which dilutes the value of number one uh, a little bit. And um, but, you know, we enjoyed it because more people can hit number one, which is. Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'd like to hit number one, but I'm not going to lose sleep about not hitting number one, because the truth is that. If I didn't hit number one. It's because um, it's not because I sold less. It's because somebody else sold more, which is totally fine, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey, good for them. They're selling books, um, you know. Uh, as long as my fans are happy and the books aren't, you know, crashing in sales numbers, um, I'm not going to worry about what number uh, they happen to be. But it would also be pretty hard for me to not hit number one, at least in the times in fiction, mm-hmm. because when I'm releasing, uh, particularly a Stormlight book. People do not release that same week. Um, uh, You know, if George were going to ever releases the next Song of Ice and Fire, the publishers just aren't going to put a book that they hope will hit number one in that week. Uh, And they kind of all dodge one another because there's enough lists and enough variety that they can be like, ooh, this book's coming out here. Let's put it out a different week um, so that we we don't have to go up against, you know, a, a Stormlight novel to get number one. Um, and you know, the days of me and John Grisham fighting over number one just don't happen anymore. Cause we're like, we'll just have Grisham have his week and Sanderson have his week and that'll be fine. Sick. Um, we've got a lot of questions from the chat and this is something I'm, I'm very curious about as well. Changing gears. What is, uh, what's your like technology stack when it comes to writing? Like <laughs> what are the tools that you use for this? <laughs> so I am fairly low tech, um, Microsoft word. Um, is my writing platform of choice. The only tool that I use that a lot of uh, people don't use is I do have a wiki. Um, it's a personal wiki. It's an open source software uh, program called WickedPad. Um, and it's for me and my team uh, to keep track of continuity in the Cosmere books. 
Um, and um, that's only inward facing. That's not outward facing. Fans can't go to that. Um, but uh, it is there. Uh, it's not even on the internet, right? It's it's hosted locally just for us. Um, and that is uh, is really handy. I find the wiki way of thinking just it's easy to look things up. It's it's easier than encyclopedia entries for me um, and whatnot. So uh, I do recommend that. But I write the books in Microsoft Word. Um, pretty old school. Um, you know, start on start with Word one and write to the end of the chapter. Um, uh, sort of stuff. And then I usually have a notes file that's a separate file, and then a um, an outline file that's a separate file, and then a what I call a floating outline. It's the short term outline of the stuff I'm doing immediately next as a separate file. Hmm. Okay. Um, and p- purely so. Uh, Again, shifting gears, purely out of my own curiosity, to to what extent do you look at like seventeenth shard uh, people uh, sort of uh, fan, fan theories about what's going to happen in future books, and to what extent does that like guide your decision making about what's going to happen in future books? You know, I don't spend a lot of time with that. Um, I understand it. I was part of that for the Wheel of Time fandom. Um, I went to those sites and things like that before I was in, long before I was involved. Um, and I totally get it. I am happy those people are there. I like that they're making uh, lots of interesting theories. Um, but, um, you know, I have learned from, uh, let's just say I've, I, I've seen what other authors have done. Um, and it's generally, I recommend against changing what you're going to do because people are theorizing in the right or wrong direction yeah. uh, either way. Um, and I kind of have this thing that if you do your job well as a writer, that means that upcoming twists and turns are foreshadowed, mm. um, and nothing's completely out of nowhere, uh, except for, you know, there's the occasional sort of thing that's supposed to be a surprise to the characters, like, you know, an unexpected illness or death could mm. happen in any book, right? Yeah. You don't have to necessarily foreshadow that. Uh, but m- plot twists and turns in general, I am going to lay foundation for, um, and uh, big world-building surprises that might be surprises to the casual reader just will not be surprises to the uh, to the entrenched reader. This kind of plays into my philosophy on world-building. I, I have this thing I, I call fractal world-building. I like world-building where big picture, someone who is a casual fan who reads the book is, is able to see the big picture and understand it. And someone who wants to dig in deep. Um, the closer they zoom, you know, fractal gets more detailed, the more you look at it. That's kind of one of the, the features, the more de- detail you look at the world building, the more interesting things you find mm-hmm. to explore and to talk about. Um, so it's kind of this two prong thing. Don't make it so obtuse that the casual fan is lost, but don't make it so, uh, simple and surface level that there's nowhere to dig, um, and try to do both at once. If you can very, uh, very easy to understand on the large scale, very complex uh, under the hood, so to speak. Um, and because of this, I'm just not going to surprise those people because I want them to figure it out. I want it to be there for them. Uh, and I've learned that it's madness to try uh, to to trick them just for the fact of, ha-ha, you didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah. um, that's just not how I work. I don't think ultimately that's going to create a satisfying series. It's like trading off the long-term satisfaction of your series for the short-term being able to punch someone in the face um, and not have them see it coming. Um, so uh, I do read them on occasion. I, uh, I'm i amused when they're right. I'm more amused when they're way off. Um, but uh, 
they there's basically no big twist in my books that somebody hasn't theorized on one of the websites and i don't spend a lot of time looking at them so i see them casually just uh you know on on my front page of reddit um which means that uh i'm doing my job to an extent and i just hope those hardcore fans um are vindicated and feel satisfied rather than feeling uh i saw this coming years ago now i'm not interested anymore that, mm. that's just what i have to hope yeah um no, absolutely and we've got it, it actually plays into there's there's different ways of uh of creating uh interest in your story and um a, an illustration of this is the book dune which is in omniscient and often will play its cards face up meaning if you have a uh if he has a twist coming he will not just foreshadow it he'll have the character that's going to betray them in their thoughts think about man it's going to suck when i betray these people mm. um rather than depending on the twist uh, Frank Herbert depends on the suspense of you knowing what's going to happen and feeling like you're like, oh no, how are the characters going to respond to that? Um, and there's there's a lot of depth to that kind of emotion. Um, and that's one thing that I think writers could practice a little bit more. Um, how is your book going to work if there were no twists? Uh, don't make the twist a gimmick. Make it mm. work because the reader is really, really interested in this twist's effect on the characters and how they're going to respond. Uh, you're going to have a better story in that case. Um, don't subvert expectations just to subvert ex- yeah. expectations. Subvert expectations because it's going to have an interesting effect on the characters and the readers will be more engaged because of it. Mm. Yeah, like y- you, ki- you kind of did that with Teravangian where you see his thoughts and feelings. I-, I-, I was very surprised when that was yeah. happening. I was like, oh, wow. He's he's telling us that Teravangian's like you know is is a bit of a snake, and yep. and, and and then you and then you hit them with the with with the end of book four. I was like bloody hell. Yes, um, no spoilers. Yeah. But there's a big thing that happens at the end of book four. But yeah, in book one, um, I, yeah. I you know you get a few chapters, but it's not a big spoiler because I don't consider it a spoiler. It's not a big surprise reveal. It's instead of oh, this is scary sort of reveal. Mm. Um, yeah. and that's a. Uh, that's that's what I was trying with that. Um, so anyway, I'm glad that that worked for you. No, absolutely, and it's it, it's like within my uh, WhatsApp group of uh, your your fans and sort of my friends at, at university. Anytime one of us gets to towards the end of one of your books, there's always like OMG, 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 what the fuck? What the fuck? Like it's just like <laughs> in the thing, and everyone's like, "Yep, <laughs> that's the end of Way of Kings," or "Yep, that's the end of Words of Radiance," and <laughs> it's a, a incredibly satisfying experience um cool oh uh f- final thing i want to make a so you're some my channel is all sort of themed around productivity you're famous for being a very productive prolific writer so i want to take sound bites from this chat and make it into a like a um, you know something suitably clickbaity like in, interviewing the world's most productive writer or something like that um okay. i want i wonder if you can just sort of toss out a few other random productivity tips you have because it would be useful to chop into the video <laughs> So Brandon, okay. how, how are you so productive as a writer? Let's see what I got. Um, I feel that writing-wise, knowing my destination is really important. I outline backward and I write forward. And I think this is very strong for me because I know where I'm going. Um, I always have momentum because I'm pushing towards something that I think is going to be really exciting. That said, um, you have to make sure that each chapter can be somebody's favorite. This is one of the mantras of um, my uh, 
my editorial director. He says, don't write a chapter that can't conceivably be someone's favorite. It doesn't have to be everyone's favorite, but there should be something in every chapter that some reader's going to be like, I love this. Um, don't make any chapter the boring filler. Make sure that the boring filler is exciting and interesting in its own right. Maybe just a different type of exciting. And I think that works in life as well, right? Make everything you're doing exciting and uh, interesting to you in some way, even if it's not your favorite part of the process. Um, I do not like revision very much. Revision is my least favorite part of the writing process. But one of the things I've been able to do to make myself excited about it is I create an outline for my revision. I really like the outlining process of books. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts. It's this, this exploration, this world building. So the fun of creating an outline for this is what my revision is going to accomplish. And this is what it's going to look like when I'm done. Gives me that same feel for the parts of it that I really love. That makes the revisions more interesting to me because it's goal-based rather than just, oh, man, I have this broken book I've got to fix. Instead, I've got, oh, I get to implement this new thing that's going to make the book so much more interesting. Let's go and do this. That's going to be more exciting. Um, so I really enjoy doing that. Um, one productivity tip I have for creative professionals that's worked very well for me is I try to make sure that all of my non-writing things are segregated into a single day. Um, I have one day's work that I can spend on interviews, that I can spend on meetings, that I can spend on working on my class, for instance. All the things that are beside my career, uh, doing uh, YouTube videos, all of this, those all lie fall on Thursdays for me. And I have a limited number of hours in a Thursday. And my whole team knows that those hours, that's all they're going to get. We can't let that overflow because it's very easy to let the non-productive things that are still important overshadow actually creating new content as a creative professional. You could spend forever on publicity. You could spend forever creating all of these things, doing all these interviews, and then stop writing books. Um, and so for me, my life got better when I said, I'm just going to like ripping off a bandaid. I'm going to do all these things on the same day and I'm going to limit it to these hours. Um, and now when something comes up that we need to do um, that, that, you know, we're like, oh, we totally need to do this. this well, the Thursday's full. So we'll schedule that for next Thursday. And we just have to tell the people Brandon's next hole in his schedule is that Thursday and they deal with it. Right. Uh, people are used to this in the business world. Um, another important thing to practice and learn as a creative professional is learning to say no. Um, very hard to say no. You want to do every publicity opportunity that arises. You want to say yes. Um, when people write you emails that say, hey, can I take you out to dinner and pick your brain? You just totally want to say yes, because you know what? You had opportunities like that when you were breaking in and you want to pay this back to the community. Um, and that's a good instinct, but it's so easy to say yes to the point that you are unable to continue your career. Um, you can't say yes to everyone. And coming up with certain rules and criteria that allow you to say no is a, just a really good plan. Um, that when something falls outside of that, you just say, you know what? I'm going to say no. They can't do it on a Thursday. Um, I maybe just have to pass on this opportunity as good as it would be because I have too many things already to do on the Thursdays. Um, I can't let it take my 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 time on the other things. Um, I have to say, I have a blanket. I just say no to going out to dinner with fans now. I just can't do it anymore. I used to do it and try to help out, 
but I could be at a meal every hour of every day of the week. Um, I could be signing books every hour of the day for years and not get through everyone's books. And so coming up with these rules and saying, this is what we do. Um, Brandon, like uh, back before COVID, we had a, Brandon can do one event a month. That's it. And if an event is already scheduled that month and someone comes to us and says, we really want Brandon, can we do this? And that, that month is scheduled, we just say, I'm sorry, we can't do this. Brandon is booked that month. And we just go ahead and, um, and let that be our rule because uh, there are times in my career, particularly the, the words of radiance era that I've mentioned earlier, when I was starting to explode in popularity, this is where I first hit number one on the times list. This is when I was starting to sell you know, in the hundreds of thousands of copies instead of the tens of thousands of copies. Um, the publisher was like, we need to push this guy big. He's not just the wheel of time thing. Like his own career is huge. Uh, and the, the opportunities for promotion just started flying at me and they were high quality. It's like, do you want to fly to Paris for free and speak at this speaking engagement? Yes, I want to go to Paris. I love Paris. Yeah, sign me up. Um, and so we had a couple of years in there where like I was in, I was in London like four times, which is, you know, for me, it's like a 11, 12 hour flight. Um, and I did like a 30 day, uh, 32 day tour, uh, for the words of radiance, uh, tour, which is just insane. And those were like eight hour. Well, they weren't eight hour back then, but they were like six hour signings. And then the more recent ones like Oathbringer, the signings were eight or nine hours, um, and I really quickly overbooked to the point that it was terrible for my productivity some of those years because I was just always on the road. Um, these rules have helped me quite a bit in keeping the focus on what I want to do most, which is write the books. Fantastic. There you go. Some sound bites. Amazing stuff. Maybe. <laughs> that's, that's like really They're good. They're very writer focused, um, but uh, that's how I, the lens through which I see everything. Yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've been finding that like basically all of your writing specific YouTube videos are also very good, just like general life advice, creator advice. It's, you know, it's a, it's always interesting. Um, Ryan, thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy. Yep. Um, any, any final message you'd like to, to say to the people watching? <laughs> no, enjoy it. Find a way to enjoy it. Um, I think the way your philosophy of let's figure out how to make the things that you need to do more enjoyable is a really good philosophy to, in life to have. Amazing. And I will use that as the, uh, the, the, the quote uh, for the book. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Brandon. Uh, thanks, everyone, for, for watching. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next time. All the best, Brandon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at N Overthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.